Welcome to PA Nation, the entertainment podcast about life below the line. I'm your host, Cooper Peltz. On this episode, we talk to producer, photographer, and now author Mandy Johnson, who started her career interning for a number of photographers before going on to produce a wide range of projects, spanning from photography to live comedy, in addition to her new book, Super Serious, an oral history of Los Angeles independent stand-up comedy. We discuss what the LA comedy community means to Mandy, how her experience as a cocktail waitress prepared her for a career in producing, and the silver linings of being arrested at 15. If you enjoy our show, please rate, review, and subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Those things make all the difference in us being able to make more and more of these episodes for you. If you'd like to contact us, please feel free to email us at panationpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram at panationpodcast. All right, thanks for giving this a listen. Here we go. This is Mandy Johnson. Hi, Mandy. Hi, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right. It's a, it's December, and that's it's weird. December. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. We, I was in like, uh, you know, compiling like all the research and stuff for this show. I was looking back at like my first document that I started for for your episode, and it was back in August. So this is a long wow. time coming. Wow. Also, I feel like so honored that there was research done to talk to me <laughs> oh that, yeah that feels no. like work that maybe you didn't need to do <laughs> <laughs> no i deep dive i got i got wow. all the details wow wow um, i mean there's there's not that many so i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> no that's that's what i like honestly i mean some some people have so much material that you have to sift through and i, I like the concise you know you're like she hasn't done a whole lot yet she's just getting started so this is gonna be real quick <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's one thing that's so interesting about you and something I've heard on different podcasts is like people are interested in what you do. And I love your kind of like self-deprecating kind of, <laughs> uh, you know, version of yourself that you have in your head where you're like, oh, yeah, people aren't like interested in like what I do or like <laughs> I don't I don't need to do press or anything like that. But it's like this is the stuff that I feel like when I was in college and even in high school. I wish people like you who have this experience, you know, did more podcasts and did more interviews because it's like so beneficial for people like like us that want to, you know, get into producing and kind of more creating the structure for performers to to play in. You know, um, I think that's like a very important thing to to provide to young people. That's so kind. And I deeply hope that somebody finds anything I've done or said helpful. That would be <laughs> That would just truly, that would be amazing and wonderful because it is a lack of information if you want to be a weird hybrid of a human that's not a performer. And mm -hmm. it would be great if anything that I screwed up along the way helped somebody not do the same things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 all you can hope, honestly. I mean, I think that that just should be your hope in life, you know, yeah, that you exactly. can like pass. I'm not going to have kids, but pass something along <laughs> to somebody at some point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, this I feel like this whole community kind of you're so nurturing of the community as a whole, uh, like they're almost like your kids, you know, I'll take it, you know, uh, hundreds of comedians as my children. That's enough. You know? Yeah, I think that's, yeah. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> so so going back like to the very beginning, like where did you grow up? Uh, I was born in Chicago and I grew up in Elkhart, Indiana. It's mm -hmm. um, one of the Tri-Cities. 
uh, which is Mishawaka, South Bend, and Elkhart. And everyone knows where South Bend is now because of Mayor Pete. Um, <laughs> but it's also like I would just tell people when I was growing up or, you know, once I left, it's by Notre Dame. It's kind of like the blue collar of the three cities. So were your parents like into the arts at all? Like where did where did this start? My mom's a really good painter and mm-hmm. like kind of very crafty. She painted very tiny um, like farmhouse landscapes growing up and like and big ones too but she would paint them on like small pieces of wood and my parents would sell calendars and like my dad's a really good woodworker like building wood stuff and so they would make these things and then my mom would paint on them and they would sell them at craft fairs when we were growing up and that's how they would make money for our christmas presents which is very cool and uh very uh midwest of them i feel like yeah (laughs) um they're both from kansas and so uh, I think that it took him a handful of years, but the calendars really took off. And then they would sell like refill packets. Like this is before photo calendars. Like this is like, early 80s before mm-hmm. photo calendars were like a thing. And so people would just order them from my parents. Just mm-hmm. And they were just print. They were just printouts that like fit the wood thing that they built. Oh, yeah. And yeah. they were very and affordable. <laughs> but they were really affordable because me and my sister like assembled them. Nice. Child um, labor. Yes. That's... <laughs> but my parents told me later like that. I mean, they made a lot of money off of these calendar things. And my dad's biggest regret is that they didn't do it sooner. <laughs> <laughs> Like, eventually they had to stop because my mom went back to work full time and she was like, I just didn't have time to, like, do it. (laughs) So my mom was a teacher and my Mm -hmm. dad worked in business. My dad really liked photography. My mom, like, did art stuff on the side. Um, We we weren't, like, specifically creative, but I think that my dad always had, like, a pipe dream of being, like, a photographer. And so I think although it was terrifying to some level that their daughter really put their foot down her foot down and demanded to go to photography school i think that they were excited about what that might mean and like you know we're supportive we're very very supportive of it so did you was photography like your main outlet as far as like the arts go or were there you know school plays and no (laughs) movies and tv and you know all this stuff uh photography was kind of it uh i didn't we didn't until i was maybe in like late middle school early high school we didn't really have like a lot of cable television I didn't really have like a lot of pop culture like that in my life Mm -hmm. um but on a trip when I was in sixth grade we went to Yellowstone I always mix up I do too and I'm always like which one is it and I feel I live in California I feel very dumb (laughs) about it all the time um but we went to Yellowstone and I think just to amuse me like to keep me occupied my mm-hmm. dad taught me how to use his Canon AE1. And so that was kind of my first exposure into like a real camera. I'd exposure. had like. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> uh, I'd had like other point and shoot versions, you know, growing up. And then I think a couple years later, I would keep borrowing it from him. And a couple years later, he kind of officially gave it to me. And he did so in a way. I still have it. It's still in perfect shape. I still have all of the lenses. It still works. And I (laughs) use it all the time. So for the record. But he gave it to me where he would show me a lens and he'd be like, this lens is worth more than your life. And then he would put it back in the case and he'd be like, and this is the 80 millimeter lens. 
also worth more than your life and put it back in the case. And so he was like very threatening when he gave it to me. Uh Um, But it worked. I took really great care of it. And I still it's still all in great shape and totally usable. Did you find like a community in photography or was that a very like solitary thing? I did when I got to college at my high school. That was in Elkhart. I went to boarding school later in high school. I had a really cool photo teacher, Mrs. Clark, and she kind of just let me do whatever I wanted because by the time I got and I don't really remember how I learned darkroom stuff specifically but by the time I got to like be able to take a photo class in high school I already knew so much that she was like you don't just go like do whatever you want to do like go do photo shoots with your friends or whatever and so I did like really weird stuff and she was always very encouraging of it that's so valuable I think she she was just like very supportive I think she was just like you have thoughts and you don't need to have the things I'm going to teach in this class like you already know how to expose film and like how to develop it and like what to do and then I did photos for the school paper at my high school and printed in the darkroom a lot there the idea of a high school having a darkroom is just like so foreign to me I love that (laughs) idea it was the 90s. It was like the mid 90s. So, you know, don't know how old your listeners are, but you know, cell phones didn't exist. Uh-huh. <laughs> Social media was not a thing. Mm-hmm. And dark rooms were in high schools. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just a, a, a whole new world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember I listened to a lot of Nine Inch Nails while printing in my high Great. school. Yeah. Just like very, like, you know. Mm hmm hair in your bangs you know yeah very angsty teen very dark eyeliner yes that's what i'm imagining yes and then (laughs) and then i went to boarding school and i couldn't do photography at boarding school for a while because it's it was a bad kid's boarding school because i was a bad kid oh you did not find this in your research well okay so (laughs) that was a little bit of a feigned excitement I will say I have a lot of questions about this because boarding school in itself is, well, I feel like any kind of specialty school, even like a charter school, I went to a charter school and it is this kind of like, you find both ends of the spectrum where it's like really like kind of gifted kids or like kids that their parents are like really very like attentive to them and stuff and like pushing them to achieve Mm -hmm. things. And then it's the kids that have exhausted all other schools and have gotten kicked out of all other schools. So I was curious. My school was none of those. (laughs) (laughs) So what was it? My school was a boarding school. It was an emotional growth boarding school. I got sent there because I was arrested when I was 15 for selling acid on school grounds. And charged with a class A felony. Wow. it's a lot about me. And so they tried to like wave me to adult court. But the judge, uh, thankfully, was trying to like reform the juvenile system in Elkhart. And I didn't have any priors. And I was white. So that probably helped a lot, too. Let's not let's not be ignorant to that. So my so they he was like, no, I'm not going to sentence her to like 60 years in prison. That's crazy. Um, and so uh, my parents found there's like, I don't know how many still exist, but at the time, this company called CEDU, which is spelled C-E-D-U, uh, mm-hmm. and it stands for, it's not an acronym, but it stands for see what you do and do something about it. Mm-hmm. Makes no sense that that's what it stands for, and it's spelled yeah. the way it's spelled. But um, <laughs> it was like founded by this man, Mel Wasserman, I think his last name is, mm-hmm. and it was based, the emotional growth programming was based off the book The Prophet, uh, which also makes no sense if you know that book. <laughs> Um, and, uh, he, it's almost Scientology in his belief of like not having real therapists do emotional growth with teenagers, Mm -hmm. probably so that he could make more money. Let's be honest. (laughs) But that's where I went to boarding school. So my parents like kind of proposed this boarding school as an alternate to state girl school. Yeah. And the court accepted that. 
and then I was court ordered to it. A lot of the kids there were like kids who had done been in a lot of drugs or drinking and their parents like didn't know how to get them help anymore. Like they had tried therapy or tried whatever and they felt helpless. And there were also kids there who like never wanted to leave their house. They had, um, is that agoraphobia? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so it kind of like ranged from like heavy anxiety to like drug drug users and drinkers to hmm. people who were arrested to, you know, people who like threw chairs at their parents. I, ca- I can't imagine the stress of being arrested at 15. Like that's just like, is that a, a moment where you're just like, you don't realize that you're your life could potentially change in such a huge way or was it yeah i think when you're i think when you're 15 in general you feel fairly invincible Mm -hmm. i think you're supposed to you're young you know you're supposed to make all your dumb decisions and stuff i don't think it really even sunk in until i went to like my first trial date which happened fairly quickly right you get arraigned and um you know they figure out what they're gonna you know do with you or whatever and you know they were like presented the waving me to adult court for like 60 some years of jail and I was like oh that's like a this isn't like a made up thing this is like a real thing that they're proposing to a real person who can make this decision yeah and I have to plead guilty to this thing because I was like physically caught with it was it a 21 jump street type situation I think just some kids I sold to like ratted me out which is it's fine narcs I mean, it's fine. It's, it's you know, ultimately, if I hadn't been arrested, I wouldn't have made it to boarding school. I wouldn't have learned about photo school. I wouldn't have met Joel. I wouldn't be here. You know, it's fine. It's all fine in like the bigger scheme of things. But mm-hmm. I mean, man, what a real fucking asshole thing to do to my parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. Just, oh, God, my dad was so like funny. traveling and he had to like for work and he had to like come back. My mom had to like deal with it by herself as uh, a adult. When I think back to that, I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I can't I can't even imagine. Yeah, the your mom was a teacher, right? And so Yeah, I think it was probably so embarrassing. <laughs> that's so hard. But now uh, everything's good. Yeah, I have apologized to her many times over the years and she was like, "Look, in the grand scheme of your life, she was like, was it a shitty like 3 years?" Yeah. She's like, "But that's 3 years of, you know, I have 35 other great ones, so it's fine." Yeah. At this boarding school, was it like a highly like structured situation as far as like yeah, they like, don't let you have a lot of things when you first get there. So, like, I don't even think I was allowed to have a camera for, like, a year or something. And then eventually, by the time I left, I built a dark room off campus. One of the counselors there owns a music camp on the same mountain. This is in the boarding school is in California. The boarding school doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. They mysteriously went bankrupt. <laughs> Nobody knows how that happened. <clears throat> Capitalism. Uh, but, um, <laughs> you know... Um, I, he eventually allowed me to build and help me build a dark room from scratch, like in a like an empty storage shed or something on his music camp, and was really sweet and supportive about it, and it was fun to like build it and then you know to make it work and like print again and then a larger mm. before I went to photo school. It is kind of structured. There's like a ton of it's it's a really weird school. There was like chopping wood and like running and there was <laughs> wow. yeah there was stuff. There was lots of downtime, but there was also like lots of stuff. Do you think that was like that contributed to your you know an emotional growth? school or whatever do you think that was like a that helped you or do you think it was just you naturally kind of like you know maturing over the years I think that it probably I was really unhappy in Elkhart I didn't really fit in there wasn't like a lot of there wasn't a supportive community there for somebody who was like an artsy kid when I by the time I got to Santa Barbara to go to college I was like oh my god if like my hometown had like coffee shops and like (laughs) cool places to hang out where people like did things maybe I wouldn't have sold drugs (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't know, like maybe I would have found other people, you know, to be friends with instead. I was just very bored and wanted money and like a, a reason to be places when I was 15, you know. And so in this in this uh, kind of like highly structured environment, is it the kind of thing of like when I get out of here, you know, I have all these plans of like things that I want to do. And that was like your, you know, photography was like number one. Well, when I was there, so I graduated high school from there and we're not going to really call it a a strong high school education, but it was a fine high school <laughs> education. I have a high school diploma. And I right? did not do That's things like I did not do things like trig or chemistry, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> I don't need that in my career, so it's fine. But I had to apply for like schools and stuff, you know, and take ACTs and like do that stuff when I was at boarding school. And I really had um, no desire to go to a regular college because I really struggled with more like general education classes in general, just Mm -hmm. like keeping interest and like doing homework. I did in regular high school. It just didn't click with me on a lot of levels. Like that style of learning was really hard for me. Um, But like hands on stuff or like math that applied to photography or science that applied to photography was like really easy for me to learn and like wrap my head around. But I just really struggled with like regular classes that I didn't find like interesting. Yeah. And so I only applied to two photo schools, I think, and was like, I don't know, this is all I'm going to do. And so (laughs) I learned about, I went to Brooks Institute of Photography in Santa Barbara, and I learned about it from somebody who was at my boarding school who like grew up in Santa Barbara told me about that. And then in doing research, I also found like Rochester Institute of Technology in upstate New York. And I chose Brooks because it's in California and the weather is warmer. That seems to be a through line of, of a lot of my guests. Is, yeah, California is just, I, I didn't want to be cold anymore. Yeah, I didn't want to go back to being cold. I mean, like the mountain had snow because I went to boarding school just up by like Arrowhead and like and Running Springs between Big Bear and like Arrowhead. Uh-huh. Um, and it snowed and stuff up there. But I was like, oh, I think I'm done with this cold weather stuff. And I mean, Rochester is, I think RIT is probably a stronger technical school and i think it still exists where brooks no longer exists also again <clears throat> capitalism um so uh um but you know brooks was fun it was in california and i learned a lot and it was good it was a good fit for me and so i did spend once i got into brooks which was not difficult um if you had the money to pay the tuition i think they kind of took i kind of went right after they sold it to a four it was run by a family forever and they wouldn't at that time when it was run by the family I believe they didn't let 18-year-olds in. They wanted people Hmm. to, like, go have a little bit of life experience and then come to this school and, like, in your early 20s if you still wanted to do photography. I think it was, like, don't just, like, randomly pick this as, like, a cool thing that you think you want to do, you know? Yeah, yeah. Was that still there when you went there or was, like, we're taking this seriously? Yeah, yeah. My enrolling class was, like... 60 kids maybe at the most maybe it's more like 50 um so we all knew each other and me and one other girl who i'm still friends with i think we're like the first or like second set of 18 year olds allowed in the school Hmm. um and it was like right after they sold it to a for-profit college like conglomerate that would eventually you know run it to the ground and like kind of maximize like I think when I left enrollment, enrolling classes were like 300. And the school just like wasn't physically built for that many people. The main campus was in this like huge mansion in Montecito. (laughs) (laughs) That like, I was like, this is what schools look like. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is everyone's experience. I was like, this is weird. Um, (laughs) But that's where I really felt like I found people. I was like, oh, there are people out there no matter if you don't have them in high school, it's fine. You might find them in college or maybe if you don't find them in college, you'll find them in, in your career. But 
I was like, oh, immediately I was like, oh, I'm not insane. There are lots of other people <laughs> like me. Yeah. You know, and it felt very comforting to immediately kind of feel like, oh, you have similar people around you finally. Because yeah. it felt like most of my life I didn't have like I had I had close friends at boarding school that I'm still close with today that were very much like siblings or very much siblings to me. And one of them is kind of in the creative field. He's a producer and like does video editing and a little bit of photography. But Mm -hmm. one of them is just a a doctor and she's very smart. (laughs) Just Um, a doctor. Yeah. I mean, but you know, like she's, she's very (laughs) smart and, and you know, um, and she's very, she's very creative in her own way, but you know, she, um, she's just a smart human. And so it, it it wasn't like everyone there was super arty. So they all went and kind of did different things. Um, so it was nice to find a group of people that you really click with finally. Yeah. Yeah, finding that like-minded community is so important. And did you feel like you needed to like catch up in like certain ways as far as like cultural stuff like TV, movies, comedy, you know, all these different areas that maybe you hadn't been exposed to? Yeah, yeah I mean, I think it's probably still happening to some degree. <laughs> um, there will be lots of times where we'll be talking about something or somebody will be referencing a movie from like the late 90s or early aughts. And I'll just be like, mm, I don't know what that is. Uh-huh. And Joel, my boyfriend, will just be like, you were too busy doing drugs. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, so you don't know about this. <laughs> but yeah, I think that there was like a slight learning curve. But also, I was pretty, I, it was really like a blessing. And one of the first people I met at college was just kind of one of those people who asks you in a, like an insane amount of questions. And uh-huh. I hadn't really like had a thought about like oh do I tell people I was at boarding school do I tell them why I was at boarding school like do I hide this thing about my past you know and Mm -hmm. I wasn't embarrassed of it but I just didn't know the right protocol but she just like wouldn't let up and just uh, just a thousand (laughs) questions and when I finally told her she was like oh okay and the her reaction to it was so nonchalant that it made me feel totally fine for the rest of my life being fairly open about it wow that's awesome yeah so then everybody kind of knew. Like mm-hmm. when I when I find people today who don't know, like comedians and stuff who don't know, I'm like, oh, this is funny that you don't know this about me. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm like, it's not a it's not like a secret, but it's also not like you don't tell everyone you meet, but it's also yeah. I just assume that everybody knows at this point. So Yeah, that's so funny. During this time were you getting like work experience and like interning and stuff like that along with your kind no. of technical <laughs> stuff? Or was it like You would think based on all of the promises the school made to us about how we would have no problem paying back our student loans and that we would totally make fifty thousand dollars a year when we left. Uh-huh. Um that they would I'm jealous of like Art Center in Pasadena and stuff because they're in LA. Yeah. They have way more access to that. You know, any art school in LA kind of, especially nowadays, has more emphasis on internships and things. But I didn't really know that was something I should be doing until probably too late. I did work a lot. Like I had jobs. Um, like I worked at a coffee shop and I worked at a gym and I cocktail waitressed for a long time. But I didn't. Uh, I, I mean, you're very. Brooks is also year round and short sessions so it's all very intense so we were very busy all the time but I probably should have but I no I definitely did not do that (laughs) it's so interesting to me that seems like something that happens so much in in a lot of schools I mean like I guess yeah so in LA there's like you know those those outlets but in so many a lot of my I didn't go to art school or anything but a lot of my friends did and they don't really teach the business side of things and they don't really give those outlets which i just think is so crazy it it doesn't it seems like that would just be like the first thing you teach them rather than like the technical stuff it's like okay how do 
exist as a photographer or yeah. as an artist, you know? We had a teacher who I think maybe he was annoyed about something like whatever his taxes that year. He was a great <laughs> teacher. It was in a class that I shared with Joel. It was our lighting theory class. And he just spent one whole class. And our classes were like three hours long. So they were really intense classes. But he spent one whole class telling us like... And it wasn't in the curriculum. So it was just like a weird day. Uh, he spent one whole class kind of telling us that like 80% of our job, if we were successful in photography or film, was probably going to be business mm -hmm. and not creative. And when you're young, you're like, whatever. <laughs> but it's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's very true. Um, and then he spent the whole class telling us how to make sure that we wrote off the proper things on our taxes and when we go on vacation with our family how to take enough photos that it's a stock trip so you can write it off <laughs> <laughs> and all of these really wonderful pieces of information yeah. that I still use today a lot I feel like that's the I, I mean I don't know what else you learned but I feel like that's the most important information you got the whole time I, yeah I, I mean me and Joel talk about that class all the time and we're like I don't know what got up like what bug got up his bonnet that day yeah. but it was like really helpful information from him <laughs> when did you learn you know when did you realize like that information is the most helpful information like was it after moving to LA yeah so when we moved to LA I mean I was 21 when we moved very quickly 22 but so I was really young I did internships then which is really great when you aren't in school anymore and yeah. your student loans are coming due and, and you, you have to pay to rent pay. yeah exactly <clears throat> to do internships um <laughs> I mean my first year was like a hodgepodge of like really terrible jobs that I would work for like a month or two months or like three months and then just quit because I was uh -huh. like oh, no this isn't this can't be the way that I'm gonna figure this out you know yeah. in Los Angeles and it also like it feels like photography is like a like a field where it definitely feels like if you didn't know somebody or like have a way in, it feels it's challenging to like figure out how do you even still as you're trying to advance your career, like, how do I get to the next thing? You know, yeah, it's like a mythical quest or something. <laughs> <laughs> you like find the ruby and the black tree and you're like, OK, I don't know. So I just I like worked at like a fitness magazine as like a photo researcher for like a month. But it was like in Thousand Oaks and it was like mm. four hours a day. So it was part time, but I had to be there every day. But then it was like four hours of driving every day yeah and it was an, it was a nightmare and so I was like I can't work this job I can't make enough money at it so I quit and then like I just like would randomly take jobs and I worked for this really cheesy headshot photographer <laughs> who out of his house who made me dress up like I was going to like the fanciest office but I just worked like in his living room it was incredibly uncomfortable and he would ask me he was like I can tell like you eat garlic but so could you what like not like because I can smell it on you even if you've just had it like two days ago and I was like mm, oh my no. gosh <laughs> and he just took photos of people in the same he must have made a killing uh he lived in a house in Santa Monica and I was like oh you shoot like four people a day and you charge them all like five hundred dollars and you just shoot them all with a really, really intense gold reflector. And I was like, your photos suck. Like, I could do so much better. But then I ended up at an internship where I eventually moved into, like, a producer role at a photo agency. And the woman who hired me was very crazy. This is what she said to me, which I can understand now. But at the time, truly was the most insane reason to hire me. 
she when we met, she asked me a ton of questions about my cocktail experience, huh. like how busy the bar was, like how many, you know, like how how big my tabs were on busy nights. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is really feels irrelevant to this yeah. job. And then at the end, she was like, if you can cocktail like that, then you can produce. Oh wow! And I, what do you think of, about that? What does that mean? I think as a cocktail waitress, you have to manage a bunch of tables, and you uh-huh. have to keep track of them, and you have to move in a really really fast-paced environment and get things done very quickly and efficiently while being really pleasant to your tables and very like hospitable and so I think there is overlap of somebody who can manage a bunch of tables while being nice in a busy environment while thinking on your feet a lot of that does and now I'm not saying like every cocktail waitress could be a producer but (laughs) I understand like her thinking behind it that she was like I can train you if you could do this I can train you to be a producer you know like you have a certain set of skills that maybe a lot of people don't have you know, uh-huh. or like, because I like, I really liked cocktailing. And I just like, couldn't find a cocktail job in LA to save my life because I'm not an actress. And it was definitely the time there, you know, it was the mid aughts where like, you would apply for restaurant jobs, and they would ask you for your headshot. And I was like, Oh, I don't. I don't have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the what is it in Ocean's 13 or whatever, where they they can fire the waitresses because they hire them as models who serve or something oh like that. sure yeah yeah and like all job interviews you went to for any waitressing job in LA at that time and I don't know if they're still like this was like an open call casting so you were just in a room <laughs> with like a hundred people oh that's awful waiting to get called to a table mm-hmm. and they're just judging you on how they don't care that you did a 2000 a night tab on Friday night in Santa Barbara at an Irish pub. They don't care. (laughs) So I couldn't get anyone to hire me in food service. And so I was like, sure. So I worked under her. And very quickly, uh, I was producing jobs that I would feel nervous with a 22-year-old producing like half a million dollar ad jobs and stuff. Yeah. I had some clients that had come in. I must have, it must have been like six months after I had the job or something, had come in and they were from Japan And we had been planning this huge shoot with like a week long, multiple locations with multiple photographers. And I produced the whole thing like in the desert, in the valley, like up to Santa Barbara at the beach, blah, blah, blah. And they were shooting this whole campaign. And we'd been doing everything over email and phone. And then they met me. And it must have been terrifying if I met me (laughs) with the job that they had. Because at the time, you don't really think about You're like, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm doing a good job. Yeah. But they all later at the very last night when we had dinner, they all they didn't ask me the whole time I was there. They all treated me with the utmost respect and everything went great. The whole shit went great. But the very last night on our going like end dinner, they're like, OK, so we all took a bet on how old you are. <laughs> <laughs> and thinking back to that, I'm like, oh, they must have been terrified when they met me. <laughs> yeah. How, how old did they think you were? I think somebody guessed 24, but I was like 22 and a half or 23. But they were just like, oh, my God, we're so young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Age shouldn't be an issue, but it really is. Like, if, like for me, like I got my first producing job at 23. And oh, also with um, a friend of your Ryan Sickler. You know oh, him? I love ryan yeah so we we worked on a kevin hart show together oh yeah yeah that was my first producing job and he was such a great boss he's so ryan's just the best he really is but it was it was a thing of like they're really trusting me with some stuff this (laughs) is uh we'll we'll see if i don't fail at this i don't know 
Yeah. I mean, looking back now, I'm so f- much older. I don't think I would have a hard time trusting somebody that age if they were competent. Mm-hmm. But I can definitely see like working with somebody and talking to somebody and probably thinking that they're like, oh, this she sounds like she's in her 20s. <laughs> and then looking at clearly a very young 20 year old, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Did she just get out of school? (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, actually. I did. Yes. Don't ask how I got this job. (laughs) (laughs) So what was your during this time? Because you do switch basically to producing comedy, it seems like full time or at least a lot of the time. So during your photography, what was your goal? I don't know. Like the only like framework I have for like the hierarchy of like working in photography is from that um, Robert Maplethorpe documentary yeah so I was a producer with this photo agent for six months and then she went bonkers and moved back to New York and then the very nice people at the agency offered a 23 year old a photo agent job which I took <laughs> because I needed a job and it was horrible I uh, hated it I will never be an agent bless anyone who is an agent I'm looking for an agent if anyone's listening um, <laughs> But, we have uh, a lot of agents listening to great, this show. So. Great. I heard yeah. that that was your demographic, so it's yeah, perfect. Yeah, great. <laughs> um, but I would, like, leave work every day crying. Like, it felt like looking for jobs, like, looking for work for, like, 10 people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was miserable. And also, like, no one, like, I was, like, cold calling companies to try to introduce them to photographers, and everybody would take one listen to me, and they were like, A, it sounds like her voice is trembling on the other side of the phone because it mm-hmm. was um, <laughs> because I hate cold calling because I hate getting cold calls. So I hate doing it to other people. <laughs> but also um, they're like, she sounds like she's 23, which I also was. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really awful. And then after that, I went and I was like a photo producer to small magazine. And then I kind of just stayed in the production lane. And it was somewhere around that first year and a half or so. Like I was kind of became more aware of like how working photographers were in the industry mm-hmm. and I didn't like a lot of them I thought that they <laughs> were really uh, egotistical and self-involved and rude and um, they like treated their sets like they were the most important person there and not like the talent or the client or the concept that you were doing together and I was like oh and it seemed like the way that they got ahead was just by being really into themselves and talking about that a lot to other people and then then other people got on board with it or something Mm -hmm. and I was just like oh I can't that's not me I'm if that's what it takes to be successful then I'm just not going to be a photographer yeah Self-promotion has always been something that I struggle with, and it just feels so bad. Yeah, and I mean, like, when I would hear photographers talk or, like, see them at, like, parties and stuff, and, like, the way that they just approach things, I don't, I'm not saying, I mean, they were all just successful, but it just, like, I was like, oh, that's just, like, not who I am as a human being. Like, I don't feel comfortable with that. So I was like, oh, it's fine. I was like, I'll just be a producer. And I was burnt out from photo school, and so I didn't, like, touch a camera from the time I graduated until right before we started Super Serious Show for like eight wow. years, pretty much. I didn't touch a camera really. Like maybe I took some fun travel photos or stuff, but like I had kind of been like, oh, I don't think that this seems like a hard career to be a successful photographer. And they all seem like assholes. So I don't even know if I want to be in this field with these people. So I just kind of checked out of it and just produced. And so I was a photo producer for eight years and I really liked it. I had a lot of fun doing it. I was really good at it, you know. Mm -hmm. And then that's kind of how it dovetailed into comedy was that Joel and I were going 
to a bunch of like UCB Open while we lived here. We moved here in 2004. So we saw UCB Open and then we started going to a bunch of comedy and, you know, we really liked comedy. And Joel's last boss that he had, he was a personal assistant um, mm-hmm. for four and a half years. And in his we last. We got to get him on the show. Yeah, I don't know. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But in his last year of that, his boss had a show at the Laugh Factory that Joel very quickly got put in, like a weekly show, got Mm -hmm. put in charge of booking. And we didn't know how the rules of comedy clubs worked. So we just booked whoever we wanted. So we had like Garfunkel Notes on and we had the Hmm. birthday boys on and they promptly (laughs) took off all their clothes. And we just put the people that we liked on the show. Uh And then Jamie Masada would always try to shove Laugh Factory regulars onto the lineup so the lineups would always be insanely long uh-huh. and they were just going forever. But we liked interacting with the world that we had been watching for so long. Mm-hmm. And so when Joel left that job, he was like, look, I don't know how we're going to do this. So it was like February of 2010. He's like, I don't know what I'm going to do next. He's like, but I do want to keep producing live comedy and I don't know what it looks like, but I have the name of the show. And so from there... We tried very hard to find a theater, a bar, any place in LA that would let us have a show. And we couldn't find a place. Like people were like, we don't do comedy. (laughs) Um, That's so fascinating because it it feels like in the early 2000s, there were so many bars and even restaurants and stuff. Like I feel like even where, you know, comedy death ray started and Mm -hmm. you know all these different places were were restaurants right yeah because i think comedy death ray started at the m cafe yeah the m bar m bar yeah m bar so yeah i don't know maybe we just had bad luck maybe we weren't looking in the right places uh i mean or maybe it just like shrunk at that point yeah i mean like what the one thing i learned doing the book was that the independent comedies in los angeles is it morphs to like whatever size it needs to be, you know, so like it will be huge. And then if it there's an, like a decrease of shows because every comedian gets hired on a job and is writing and it's not doing stand up as much, then like the shows shrink. And, you know, it kind of mm-hmm. seemed to like, you know, ebb and flow based on the needs of the community, you know, over the years from when it kind of, you know, whatever, like 70s or 80s or whatnot. And maybe we weren't asking them. It felt like we asked so many places and so many places were like, fuck off. (laughs) So we finally, like on a lark, I asked uh, the people that I worked with over at Smashbox Studios, which at the time had merged with Coyote. So I was really asking my friends that worked at Coyote if they would like ever consider like in the craziest world letting me pay nothing but do a comedy show at their photo studio. And they were like, yeah, sure. And I was like, Okay, you're insane, but um, <laughs> what, we'll go with yes. And so we, for the first year and a half, we produced it at Smashbox Studios in Culver City, and uh-huh. they gave us the studio for like next to nothing with all the equipment that we needed that was in-house, and we had to like pay for chairs and pay for cleaning, and then they would just make sure we had one, it would rotate depending on like the bookings, but we'd have at least one of like three. Like of their three kind of more regular size studios, they have like one kind of small one and one enormous one. So we would like rotate based on what was available, but they would like give us a scissor lift and we would build the show every month. And what, so what went into that? Like, how did you figure out your roles in that? Like, Joel had the kind of like booking. Yeah, Joel wasn't, I still had a day job. So Joel was, didn't have a day job. And so he kind of took on the role of the booking because it was a little bit more like, email labor intensive and then i did more of what i do well still which is like physical production so Mm. the actual like producing of the space and getting all the things that you need into the space and sorting out timelines and stuff and we would get i would book the food truck it kind of we didn't really have a conversation about how we were gonna 
breakdown and delineate our respective tasks, it just kind of like fell into a natural rhythm. So like Joel did more of the running the show, like giving people the light and making sure the video played and doing the tech stuff. And I ran like the backstage, making sure the comics knew they were going to get on you know, stage and that everybody is prepared and everything like that. And that just kind of like worked naturally in a weird way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not weird. We had been together for like eight years or something when we started the show. So <laughs> it worked out really well. And then we just locked into just a lot of our friends helping us some for the entire time we ran the show. Mm-hmm. Others for sh- shorter periods. But there's a, a Canadian comedian named Nigel Lawrence who's really great. Uh-huh. He built the dimmers that we used for our stage lights, um, wow. like out of Home Depot power cords and like a wall (laughs) dimmer like before our second show like just in the studio and our friend tim um who we went to photo school with helped us hang the lights every month for like the first year plus and our really good friend reagan has dj'd the show reagan bond has dj'd the show you know up until you know the pandemic and has traveled with us to like south by southwest and comic-con and stuff to dj those events with us that we did with funny or die but so yeah we just kind of like built it as like a ragtag team of dumbasses who <laughs> really uh if somebody came up to me and was like i'm gonna start a show and i'm gonna build it in this photo studio where i have to set it up i'd be like don't <laughs> <laughs> don't waste your money don't do that we just went into like a pile of debt and built the show and really didn't know what we were doing but we just really wanted to do a comedy show and we wanted to do it our way and we felt like and I still believe this like one of the best things about live comedy is that when there's not a pandemic raging is that you can just do it like if you get an audience there and you get comedians there you have a show like and you have a venue you need like three things you need a venue you need comedians you need an audience but like there isn't like there's not like a committee that has to approve you to do a show you know like you don't have to like prove to some executive that you have a good idea yeah I'm curious about your kind of journey in your comedic tastes and stuff like that because like growing up without really any kind of like exposure to comedy and stuff like that and then coming to LA it seems like a lot of the comedy that you were uh you know you reacted to and stuff was this like kind of like indie comedy or like alt comedy to you was that just like comedy to you because you didn't have the kind of like reference point of like club comedy and you know like this kind of like from the 70s and 80s uh, and like early 90s uh, it was all just kind of like this is just like what I respond to and what I like like were there genres attached to it no I think that it was just all comedy to me I never really responded to the title alt comedy I think comedy is comedy if it's funny it's funny it'll work in any room that's just my belief about comedy I watched that happen because I watched the birthday boys perform at the laugh factory and it was just as funny there as it was at UCB you know uh-huh. yeah. um, and the audience enjoyed it just as much so I think that's kind of my personal stance you know yes com- comics like tweak and refine and make small adjustments for different spaces and different audiences but I think you know uh, somebody who plays mostly independent rooms knows how to do that just as much as somebody who plays in clubs mostly so I don't really have a I didn't really think about it in those terms, especially early on, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And there was just, these are the people that we think are funny. And these are the, so, you know, we'll ask them to do the show. And that's all you we did was just ask a lot. And eventually, you know, you have enough people that people recognize. And, you know, so it's like you're asking Sarah Silverman to do the show, but you're like, oh, we've had all these other people on the show. So it feels safer because it definitely was like oh these two people who have no ties to the community you know that we can see are doing this show who aren't performers and don't want to be performers so it was you know it was maybe a little weird (laughs) um and I couldn't see being skeptical and it's in Culver City you know of it um (laughs) 
but like we had great audiences you know uh like you know 150 200 people it was really a ton of fun and was that during the time was like a special thing still like a website that people yeah. would become like yeah was it- we started the show in july of 2010 so yeah i mean ucb was still happening a special thing was happening you know death ray was still i think technically at the time death ray mm-hmm. you know yeah i mean i i mean i don't I didn't really interact with the special thing. Comedy Bureau started kind of shortly after we started the show. I think Jake started Comedy Bureau like in the fall of 2010, you know, and we were friendly with him. How long did it take to start to feel like, oh, I feel like comfortable in this community. I feel like a part of this kind of community. I think once we started doing that show and it was our first four, our first like two shows were really good or three shows were pretty good. We had a really rough November show that year. And then we eventually stopped doing December shows because it was the third Thursday of the month. And the third Thursday (laughs) in December is very late in December for anybody to be doing anything other than whatever family stuff that they want to do. We did like two years where we did December shows and then we're like, no, we're not doing this anymore. Yeah. That December show was like, I remember rigging both the December and November show and we had like two pre-sold tickets. And I was like, what are we doing this for? Like, Mm. no one's coming. We had great lineups, but I was like, nobody's coming. And then that January show, we sold out, I think, in pre-sale, which was like 100 or maybe like 120 or something. And Dimitri did the show that month. And then it, it was like packed. Like we had tons of walk-ups. And I think that's when me and Joel were like, okay, okay, like we can keep doing this. Like this, we're not going to keep losing money on this. You know, maybe we'll break even. And then we had like Reggie Watts and Sarah Silverman the next month. And that was packed. And then we were kind of off to the races at Smashbox, and by the end of that year, we had gotten a sponsor on board, and so we were able to, like, pay the comedians and at least make sure we broke even every month, give or take, a, you know, maybe $100 or $200. It, look, kids, producing live comedy in Los Angeles will not pay your rent, just for the record. <laughs> it won't. It doesn't pay the rent. It's like babysitter money. <laughs> and then, like... A year and a half in, we had to move the show because somebody at Smashbox got wise and they were like, hey, we are losing thousands of dollars by not renting out this space to somebody who can pay. And then then it was like rebuilding all over again. So we moved it to like Cafe Fado Dough um, and the first show was like huge and bananas. And then it was like rebuilding from the start again, like a whole new audience because they didn't want to drive like three miles down the road. Yeah. Wait. So was that... Where is that? Was that on the west side still? Or? Yeah, it's on Adams. So it's mm-hmm. like West Adams. Mm-hmm. It was literally, we got, into, we got into our car at Smashbox and we switched the pedometer on and we drove there. And it was like 2.5 miles. <laughs> and it was like, this should be fine. And it yeah. wasn't. It was not. It was uh, not. <laughs> no. But that, I guess that January, I finally was like, okay, like this is going to work. Yeah. But I felt like very accepted by the comedians i think because we treated it like a job like we were really professional mm-hmm. we had lineup sheets you know we took their photos like we filmed the first six months but it wasn't until like that december show where we really had like good footage because we didn't it took a while to figure out how what we were doing you know but like we were trying and i think the fact that we were trying to make an elevated independent comedy show they were like okay we, we see you and so we were kind of allotted i think a lot of room you know from people and like you know maybe more than i don't know maybe more than they would have given somebody if you if it was a shitty show and like poorly run i'm sure comedians wouldn't have come so yeah totally and i want to talk more about this but first now it's time to hear from another member of pa nation this is walkie talk So this is an experience uh, a listener has had at their production job. So he writes, My first day at a new production company was rocky to say the least. 
I started as an assistant to an A-list producer, and I was told to arrive at the office at 6 a.m. I got there at 5.45 to find the doors were locked and no one was around. 6 o'clock rolled around and still no one. By 6.45, people started to show up. I tried to find my point of contact for the job, but they were nowhere to be found. When the producer showed up, he had no idea who I was and just walked right into his office. (sighs) A few minutes later, he began yelling from his office that someone had touched his papers and that he needed his bins, whatever that means. The office was made up of a few full-time employees and about 10 interns. All the interns began to frantically run around and uh, try to find the certain papers that he was looking for and started making copies of them and running them to the producer. Another interesting quirk of this producer was that if he wasn't yelling at you, he was texting you, ordering you to do different things. If you didn't respond to him in literally two seconds, he would send another text. It was incessant. Later on that day, one of the interns was involved in a collision on the street, and when the producer found out, he didn't show any concern. That was the final thing that made me go to HR and try to renegotiate my rate. This was obviously going to be more work than I had been told. They denied my rate change, and that ended my one day at this production company. If this had been my first job in entertainment, I probably would have stuck it out and allowed myself to be treated horribly. But I had already had a couple jobs under my belt. Looking back, I get why this company had so many interns and so few full-time staff. Other than to get around paying people, it was a predatory way of getting labor that didn't have the ability to object to the way that they were being treated, because they felt like they were just lucky to have the opportunity. So that experience, I feel like, is far too common in, yes. in these... I uh, mean, truly, it's. I'm, I almost am happy this person only worked there for a day. I love that they have that kind of perspective of like, it is predatory because it is like, well, I'm I am lucky to, you know, be at, you know, whatever company this is. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll have opportunities to uh, climb the ladder and stuff like that. But at some point you have to be like, is this worth it? Like, but I mean, that should never be that should be a thing that is there, but it should never be the reason why you have to stick out bad behavior or put up with something that is uncomfortable or like predatory it just or just bad experiences like nobody yeah. should be able to treat you worse because you're so fucking lucky to have this experience yeah what i'm so lucky to have this experience of you treating me like shit like yeah. thanks so much like <laughs> you know it's it's insane that, that 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 is like a a thing that people i know it's i think it's a little less now because of you know maybe social media and like people more mm-hmm. aware of it and like and then like people my age now right who did that in like the early aughts are now Mm -hmm. in a position to be in charge of interns and assistants so i would i you know i think as a whole the cycle is getting less but it still exists by far Mm -hmm. way more than it should yeah you're lucky but like you should also be treated with respect and get paid a decent amount of money and you know yeah exactly the (laughs) the whole idea of interns i love that there's this kind of like you know swell of people being like it basically perpetuates this like people who have the money to not be to be able to not have to make money you know what Mm -hmm. i mean like they had their they're subsidized by whatever it is their parents or if they are just independently wealthy at 22 or whatever it is or working like an eight-hour night job after they intern exactly yeah and like i i even thinking about stand-up comedians who don't get paid for their time like doing comedy and stuff like that and that's something that's so special about 
your shows and the way that you produce shows is that you pay comics, but a lot of times they don't get paid for the hours and hours that they sit at, you know, I mean, especially an open mic or wherever, and then, you know, go up and they bring, you know, business to whatever bar or whatever coffee shop they're at. And it just seems like there are so many different levels of predatory behavior in entertainment that if you talk about them, the chances of people being like, oh, yeah, wait a second. That doesn't (laughs) seem right. You know, like if no one talks about them, no one's going to be no one's going to think twice about it, you know, because it's like, well, it seems like these people are consenting to being used this way. But it's really just like, I don't see an alternative. Yeah, they just don't know. You know, it's 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 one of those things that you don't know what you don't know, Mm -hmm, you know, and so. You're like, oh, okay. I have this opportunity to work for this A-list so-and-so. And, you know, you theoretically think that that's going to get you X, Y, and Z later maybe. But then there's a chance that you're going to work under these horrible conditions and it might not do yeah. anything for your career. And it's hard to see that if you don't know that that's a thing, that it might not mm-hmm. help. And it's hard to see, like, that there might be another option if you feel like, especially if you've, like, been out of work for a really long time and you're just like, I guess I have to take this job, you know, or I guess I'll take this internship where I keep looking for work because, like, I have to put something on my resume because Mm -hmm. otherwise I go into these interviews and they go, like, well, what have you been doing for the past six months? And saying, oh, sorry, I've been looking for work isn't a great selling point. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's so it is so weird that in interviews, if you have a job at the moment, it makes you so much more desirable than someone who <laughs> isn't working at the moment. It just is so, it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I've never been great at looking for jobs. It was great when, uh, <laughs> it was great when I, when we just, when we started figuring out just how to have a company on our own. And everyone who's, we've built a large crew under us that we couldn't run our shows without and that I mm-hmm. love, like my family. And, you know, we've treated them all you know, very much the same. And hopefully they have mostly all had, you know, I believe that they've all had good experiences. But, you know, we just try to teach whatever we can be helpful. We know, we pay them a very thankless, you know, 20 bucks, which is what we pay the comedians at the shows for helping us run the door or run the light or, you know, whatever. And then when we have bigger events, we'll bring them on or like projects, we try to bring them on, you know, pull from our own crew. But, you know, it, it's insane to think that then I would be mean to those people. <laughs> I am so grateful for them. <laughs> Like, it's such a split. You're either a person that's just, like, so thankful for them or it's, like, a person that's, like, so entitled that you're, like, uh, you should be happy. You know, it's, like, there's... The idea, the person who thinks, oh, I was treated badly, so I'm going to treat other people badly is the same person who doesn't think that we should have Medicare for all because they (laughs) have to pay for their health insurance. Do you know what I mean? It's, like... It, it's like no like okay you were treated badly then you should not and you didn't like that right so like don't <laughs> treat other people like at least you can learn maybe you didn't learn how to treat people well from your boss but you know I never had a great boss like uh-huh. ever and yeah. so I just have an, a bunch of experiences of what I don't want to treat people like yes. you know and so it's like oh I hated being treated this way so I want to make sure I do everything to never be this person yeah. you know yeah, and totally. Even to tell people, hey, if I'm ever like this, like fucking just slap me in the face and like tell me <laughs> to like get off my high horse or whatever, because it would be a nightmare to be such an entitled piece of shit. Yeah, I feel the exact same way. There's so many instances <laughs> of, you know, a, an EP, you know, treating me a certain way and then being able to have like, you know, a supervising producer or whoever, you know, being able to go into their office and be like, 
I just have to say this because I feel like I'm going crazy. Um, if I'm ever in that position, I am never going to act like, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. But That's also, like, like, imagine how much time, like, imagine how much of your crew's time is wasted bitching about you if yeah. you're shitty to them. Like, I think about, like, the one job that I had that was in an office of, like, 20 people. It was, like, my last day job I had. The office politics were, like, so... In- and I had just worked in, like, really <laughs> small offices, like, two, three people, you know, yeah. before that. And so the office politics and maneuvering around them was so stressful and took up so much of my day that I was like, how does anybody get any work done in this place? Like, this is insane that this is so much. But so it's the same thing. It's like if, right? So if you have a shitty EP and then everybody's complaining about that EP to each other because they need to, that's Mm -hmm. such a waste. You could just be a nice EP and then everybody (laughs) could just do their jobs and we could all be happy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's so wild that it's like, it's so... And maybe, you know, this is a very like idealized version or something but it would seem like it all just like starts at the top and if the top is yes, fine yes then it, it's like everything's gonna be fine and maybe things will crop up like you sure know, whatever, like but nothing's like, perfect but like if the top of the food chain isn't about transparency and like openness and like communication then it just it all trickles down you know yeah. and so i'm not joking when i say i feel very lucky that like a lot of the people that we work with we've worked with for a really long time and like lots of small projects from like hot tub or super serious to big projects. And I just I look forward to the days where I can hire them on more things or hire them full time or it's like it's exciting to me because I already know I work really well with these people. I know that they're really smart and talented. And I know that from years of working with them from since they were like younger and we have the same belief system when it comes to work and how to treat people. And then I don't ever have to worry about, oh, so-and-so is going to be a bad boss if I leave them in charge of this group of people because they're a good person it's like fostering like a company culture before you necessarily have a company almost you know yeah or have a company that can hire people (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) i mean i wish i just wish i had so much more money i'd hire i'd hire them all i'd hire them all out of the pandemic and it's such a waste of time to be mean to people sorry it makes me so mad it's just like such a waste of energy (laughs) same like that's honestly like i haven't been working for the last little bit and that's like one of the best parts about it you know, not working is not having those, you know, people that are, <laughs> that you just spend so much time like fuming over and taking walks and stuff and being like, okay, I have to get over this. I have to like write this yeah. thing or whatever. And it's like, look, like I've had clients that are difficult that aren't like a walk in the park to work with, you know, mm-hmm. but that's, a, I mean, that relationship, it's not like they're being abusive. You're mm-hmm. just not you're maybe not seeing eye to eye on certain aspects of the project right away, but it's a work in progress. And it's like, they're not also going to be in charge of you forever, you know? And, but then you can take the heat as like the head of the person. And then the information that you trickle down to the people that are working with you doesn't have, they don't have to be part of that, you know, stress of the client. Yeah. You can take the charge out. of Yeah. And it's your job to like, the same kind of thing when we work with like creatives and stuff, you know, it's our job to like protect them and protect their ideas mm-hmm. and keep, you know, and keep them as safe and comfortable as possible, you know, whether it be for like a live show or like a, a project we're working on or as a writer, I mean, make sure no one's abusing their time or their capabilities, you know, and and then if there's an argument to be had about that, it's, it's on us to have that argument and then mm-hmm. and then not go complain to the person about it, you know, but like. Just make it a better experience for them. It's not that hard. It's not that hard. <laughs> it's not that hard. So if you have any onset stories you'd like to share, email us at panationpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram at panationpodcast. Let's take a break.
And we're back. So let's talk more about the super serious show. Sure. So that started in 2010. Can you like run through kind of the the format of the show and like mm-hmm. what it was all about? Yeah. So we have a um, we thought we'd be super clever and we have our host, our headline also hosts the show. It was at a time in L.A. when, you know, lineup shows, the host was always like the youngest person on the show and they were clearly the most nervous and um, <laughs> they had to keep going back up on stage and like trying not to mispronounce people's names and you know trying to keep the energy like it's a skill hosting's a mm-hmm. skill and i was like oh this seems like mean to do this to a young mm-hmm. comedian <laughs> seems really rude and i was like it would be nicer if like the person who headlines the show that you kind of build the show around also like is who you're with the whole night they're like the, sh- the captain of the ship it's made it really hard to book the show um <laughs> just fyi anyone who uh-huh. thinks it's a cool format but we kind of quickly you kind of quickly learn who who will do it and who won't and um and you know then you kind of you kind of go back to certain wells a lot because you know they do a good job and whatnot but but it made it fun for us and then we kind of we would book that person and then we would book the show kind of around them to complement their style. So we try to book, and this isn't our kind of booking philosophy across the board, is we try to book a variety of diversity across the board, like comedic styles, men and women, all different races, all different like gender identities, all different, you know, sexual orientations, like just a nice big pot of diversity because all of those different perspectives come with different comedy stylings and different thoughts and then that in of itself makes a very nice eclectic lineup for a lineup show and so especially when you're presenting it early on in super serious before we moved it to the virgil a lot of people who came it was like the only comedy show that they went to which hmm. i mean what a blessing for them that that was their show <laughs> uh-huh. such a great show with free beer and wine and a food truck and not a two drink minimum <laughs> so it was like you want to have like you know like Maybe so-and-so isn't, they don't like, but then they know the next person's not going to be like the same style. It's, they know that the next person will be totally different. And yeah. so um, it allows for like these 10 minute sets and then it allows for people to be like, oh, I didn't really like so-and-so, but I love so-and-so, you know? And then we always, sc- and we'd screen a director at each show. And so we would, you know, kind of treat them as a performer and screen about 10 minutes, nine to 10 minutes of their stuff. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. I love that workaround with the MC. But yeah, I can't even imagine pitching that to, you know, someone who, you know, might have a little <laughs> bit more of an ego or something like that. Like, oh, yeah, you're going to introduce everyone. <laughs> we got really lucky early on with, like, I think a handful of people kind of trusting us and being into it. And maybe they get to do more time, you know, so they get like 20 minutes throughout the show. So they can do like a hefty up top and then a bunch in between. They can kind of do a little bit up top and nothing in between and then a bigger set at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of up to them to customize a little bit. Um, And then you try to like be aware and like you want to, you know, you want to book friendly to that person. So like you maybe you want to make sure that there's somebody on the show that they like or they're friends with, you know, or that's going to make it fun for them. And Mm -hmm. That kind of stuff, too, is always good to, like, have an eye out for. You know, it's, like, a similar concept. Like, Dave hosts, you know, Good Heroin or Kurt and Kristen have Hot Tub. You know, like, when they started those shows, they weren't who they are now, mm-hmm. you know. But 15 years of hosting Hot Tub in their careers, Kurt and Kristen are, you know, phenomenal hosts. And, you know, obviously much more famous than when they started. But their show was probably, you know, wasn't 
it wasn't like how hot tub wasn't what it is now 15 years ago you know it grew yeah. into it and they grew as hosts and stuff and, and wasn't so, that didn't they start that in new york or am i wrong no yeah that? they did yeah. um yeah but we definitely made it really hard on ourselves because we're not performers so we couldn't host the show you know mm-hmm. and grow it and so we made it hard on ourselves by having a rotating we never had a person to pin the show to permanently you know and so that did make promotion an ever-present challenge but also then like it's interesting having the double experience of then having hot tub with current kristen which is a weekly show which is easier weekly shows are easier because of promotion because it's just like every monday you're like every monday we're here every monday so it doesn't matter you missed it this monday great come back next monday don't want to come back next monday we'll be here the following monday (laughs) you know and so that makes it easier too but um Mm. It's also it's also pretty apparent that it's easier because Kristen's famous, but that <laughs> that it is because it's they, they host it, you know, and so yeah. like that part of it has made it easier over the years for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is also interesting that we're very aware that the overlap of the audience between the two shows is not as big as you would think. What what are the what are the big differences? I just a lot of people who come to Hot Tub don't come to Super Serious Show and vice versa. You would think that because we produce both of them, there would be a natural. It's the same mailing list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like they, the same people get the emails. Uh-huh. Um, but there just isn't like and I forget how we figured that out. But like it would, it's just like even just like from casual observance of like people who come every monday or a lot of mondays and like knowing faces and stuff mm-hmm. those faces don't show up at super serious show so That's it's just so very interesting. interesting yeah so how did you get hooked up with hot tub so we took over producing the show when it came out to la so we've mm-hmm. been producing it for um i guess next year we'll, we'll be going into our ninth year i think wow um with them and we heard that they were moving out here and we heard that they weren't going to go to the largo that they mm-hmm. wanted to keep, they wanted to find a place that didn't have a lot of comedy. They wanted to keep the show $5. And we just kind of pitched them, like, helping out with finding a venue. I stayed up really late one night and put together, like, a huge list. And the Virgil was on it because I remembered, whatever, I forget what, now I forget what it's called. But it's called something else before, Little Temple. Mm-hmm. But Little Temple had closed and I just, like, Googled the address and saw, and the Virgil had, like, just reopened under the Virgil. Same owner, St. Louis was the owner then, but just, you know, revamped into a classic cocktail bar. I think they went and checked out some venues on their own and then they asked to meet us for lunch. And by the end of lunch, they were like, well, do you guys want to produce a show with us? And it was That's definitely, so cool. like, a goal. We wanted a weekly show. We wanted a weekly show that wouldn't, we didn't have to start from, like, scratch scratch in a way if we could you know and it was just a really natural fit like simple things like having lineup sheets starting the show on time paying the comedians like that kind of stuff we just naturally aligned on very easily and have similar like taste in comedy and you know they really like that we always try to book a lot of new people you know I think if you went back and like looked at hot tub lineups for all the years it's been in LA we try to really cycle through a lot of like new people on the show as much as we can. So, and that's always fun because we all watch the show. So, it's fun for us to watch new people, you know, and see yeah. new comics and, you know, introduce them to our audience and all that stuff. It, it makes it fun for the four of us. Yeah. So, let's talk a little bit uh, about your book, Super Serious. It's like we've been saying, like, my goal with this podcast is, you know, trying to be a point of contact for people that are you know trying to or like 
thinking about you know getting into production or the entertainment industry at large or whatever it is and i feel like your book is just exactly what i would have loved to have like six seven eight years ago or whatever it was can you just like give a little for people who you know don't know a lot about it like can you tell them what it what it's about super serious is an oral history of independent stand-up comedy uh and so it mixes together at the super serious show through the whole time we've done it i've taken two four by five polaroid portraits of every performer who's done the show and so it mixes those portraits with uh, a loose oral history of independent comedy in los angeles and and we kind of formed it around a handful of like pillars that just kind of kept coming up so kind of like how people got started in comedy and then it it talks a little bit about when they got to LA and like what the scene was like when they arrived um and then it talks about the importance of independent comedy and then the community that surrounds it and then it talks a little bit about if they can ever see themselves stop stopping live comedy you know which everyone's opinions might change after this year but (laughs) um you know like if like what keeps them coming back to the stage like why do they keep doing it in a city where like they don't always get paid or you know there isn't a lot of money in you know independent stand-up comedy like why does everybody keep doing it you know yeah yeah and then like kind of a little section about final thoughts and and stuff like that and then there's a small little section for brody but yeah it's just kind of like i interviewed a bunch of comedians and then their interviews are broken up kind of in these sections so it's not like Anthony Jeselnik's entire interview all in one go. There's mm-hmm. different sections in the book that through our conversation, I would pull the sections that they were maybe most passionate about or had the most opinions about or had the most to say about or the most interesting parts of. And then that's kind of where their little sections are like sprinkled throughout. And I love, I love, it's a book, you know, about, it's an oral history, but it also almost reads as a book of like proverbs as well. Like there are so many like little like (laughs) maxims and little like bits of advice for just like life in general, even if you're not like a comic or anything in, you know, entertainment, it's just like, it's, it has some really profound little pieces. Oh, that's nice. I mean, I just always felt like at the core, like, look, comedians still compete against each other. They're competing against each other for jobs all the time, writing jobs, like spots, you know, whatever, acting jobs, all the stuff. But also it's a career that's built on stage by yourself, but also backstage with the same people constantly. And so it's a really interesting way to, like, have a creative career where you're encouraging people why they're on stage by themselves and you want to see them grow and it's exciting to watch them do comedy but then also you're interacting with them backstage in a very like you know more personal way but also those people might be very famous and they might be just starting out and there's like a mixture at lineup shows which is really cool and it's a really like you know comedy is very much like a leveling ground to some degree because you still have to write new material you know you still have to get an audience to show up like there's a lot of things that can keep you quite humble in comedy yeah i love that where you know it's like this dimitri martin quote of all of these jokes were equally as funny in my head (laughs) It's, it's something that truly happened on stage at our show where he was like all of these jokes are equally as funny as my head until i say them out loud to you yeah so funny and i've heard him try out stuff and be like i will never say that into a microphone again (laughs) (laughs) yeah i love that and i love that you touched on that kind of competitive you know aspect of it your the community section is so i think it's my favorite section of the book but um abby zonder has this you know she kind of talks about the 
the feeling competitive with everyone uh, in the community, but then also, you know, being supportive of everyone and having those like two kind of equal parts kind of holding them together. Do you ever get those feelings as someone who's not necessarily a comic, but as a producer? Like, is that a part of, you know, something that you have to fight or something that you've accepted about yourself? I mean, I think we can all go down black holes of wanting things in other people's careers you know I think I probably did that more with photography than with producing you know where you're like whatever like why does this person have so many Instagram followers or like (laughs) you know how come you know this person is wrapped and I can't or this person gets this and I can't but it's it's ultimately always like fruitless to compare yourself in that way and I know that you know even though you might have your 3 a.m like I can't go to sleep spiral on your phone or whatever (laughs) because like your experience is your experience and like your path is your path and as cheap easy as that is it is just true like you can't compare like you don't know what happened in their life to help get them to where they are you know Mm -hmm. and vice versa and so you just kind of have to like put your head down and do the work and as much as possible I try really hard to not allow myself to fall in because it's not productive you know Mm -hmm. to fall into that like overly competitive feeling you know and just focus instead on like what I can do better and like how I can fit more into my days and push myself as cheesy as that is but I just I can't I can't spend the time I can't justify the time of spending of just being jealous of somebody you did you have mentioned that you know the book you had certain plans for the book and and for Super Serious as a show for the 10 years and maybe wrapping it up and stuff like that. Um, can you talk about like what, what this book, uh, you know, signifies as far as like the amount of work that you've put into um, the show itself and, you know, the community as a whole and stuff like that? Yeah, like we were going to end Super Serious monthly run at the 10 year because uh, it felt like a nice even number to go out on mm-hmm. for some reason in my head it had to be 10 12 or 15 i don't <laughs> really know why um but the idea of like five more years for us was just like no <laughs> um, <laughs> 10 just 10 seemed fine and it just kind of uh i kind of just barely got the book proposal together and sold in time with a publisher who was very on board with rushing to get it done in time for the 10 years. So I sold the book um, to Andrews McNeil, uh, McNeil um, in April of 2019. And I wow. turned in the script for it in October of 2019. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And we were in the design phase by December. And by, like, March, right before the pandemic hit, was when I got, like, proofs for it. It was very fast. That's a they worked crazy turnaround. They worked very, very quickly for me. I didn't start interviewing people until like June or July because like th- there was like a con. You know, you have to like figure. You have to make sure their agreement's going to be fine before mm. you start like doing stuff. Yeah. Um. But I didn't even have a signed contract or my deposit or like my first payment or whatever. But when I started, because I was like, oh, if we're gonna do this for the ten year, then we need to like do Move this. Quick. Yeah. And so they kind of were willing to do it as fast as I could make it. Which is kind of maybe all for the best, ultimately, that I wasn't able to, like, tool around with it more. Like, that I just had to do it, you know? And I just crammed mm-hmm. it all in. It was really intimidating, the interviews. I worked with a really great transcriber who very patiently made all the interviews text. Um, <laughs> and, and then, like, it could have been so much bigger. I cut, like, half of what my initial manuscript was to fit wow. in more photos. 
I want all of the interviews. Please send me all of the interviews. <laughs> because there was so much and I was like, oh, for sure the editor will cut it. And they were like, well, this is too long. So just send us back something that's like half this. Um, but I was like, what do you want to cut? Like, I love all of it. And so uh-huh. um, so it was, a hard, it was hard to cut. It's hard to cut photos and it was hard to cut text and because um, you just want to include everybody and everything. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so it was just done really, really quickly to line up with the tenure. So like the plan was that like we would have this big tenure in July where we would have some pre-sale copies of the book there early and then it would be like a big book launch party. Obviously that didn't happen. Um, so I've just been doing lots of podcasts. So thank you so much for having me. Um, and we'll see where we're at when we get on the other side of this, but I think theoretically maybe we'll do like three final shows and like a big party for the book at some point, but Mm -hmm. it's hard to know what that'll be right now yeah um because it's hard to know i think that the virtual is fine but it's hard to know if the virtual will be there it's hard to know it's hard to know what comedy will look like on the other side of this you know yeah and how long it'll take for it to kind of be back up and running safely Mm -hmm. um and that's the most important part for me is that when we start producing live comedy again that you know everyone's safe so yeah yeah Um, and that's, I mean, thank you so much for giving so much time. As like a final maybe thought, um, could you maybe, I, I'm sure this is, is a crazy ask, but encapsulate like what is it about live comedy that's kept you a part of this community for the last 10 years? I think that there's something in any kind of thing you do, there's frustrating pieces to it. But I think that ultimately it's, the community it's my friends it's you meet comics and then you get to meet their partners then you become friends with their partners and then they have kids it's um it's a little bit more of all of it mm-hmm. i've done such a few podcast interviews now like everything makes me cry again it's such a huge part of your life I can't even imagine. I think that it's just like, I have been very blessed to like merge a lot of my work as a photographer and a lot of my practice as a photographer with comedy, not just in this book, but like I've shot a lot of comedians' weddings. I've shot album covers. I've shot ad campaigns for them. I've shot their specials. So it's, there's something really nice about that it's not just one thing that it's supportive in multiple tiers and and that people support each other and that it's there's yes there's negative stuff there's bad stuff about the community as well it's not all roses and happy and rainbows but I like to think that as a whole people are trying to do more good with it and trying to be more supportive and and reach out harder to support the community around them and to lift it up as a whole versus tear it down, which is nice. And I think when I came from photography only, where photographers were so much more catty and competitive and uncollaborative and only out for themselves, to be in a community that felt more all-encompassing and accepting was nice and welcoming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think that's a 
it's a perfect place to to end things thank you so much for uh being on the show and of course everyone needs to buy this book because it's it's not just about comedy it's about it's it's really i mean this sounds incredibly cheesy but it's really <laughs> about life um <laughs> and and you know and it'll look great on your coffee table it will it's beautiful the photos are fantastic i yeah i i just love it so much i've read it a couple times now so thanks so much (laughs) it's so nice of you um and it's it's a great it's a great gift guys no matter what the season for the holidays (laughs) or um, birthdays or christmas or or whatever valentine's day easter easter flag day whatever anything. holiday is next when you listen to this it's a great exactly. gift <laughs> it's a great gift for for your boss for your for your significant other for yes. your don't yeah. buy it for the boss if they're abusive it's heavy and it will hurt if it gets thrown at you <laughs> it's true that's true yes. um well this is perfect thank you so much mandy thank you this was really a lot of fun it's oh, it's great. nice to you know it's thanks for being so nice and into all of my stuff it's nice oh, of course <laughs> <laughs> Okay, bye everyone. Bye. If you'd like to follow Mandy, you can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Mandy Photo. I'd like to thank Mandy for taking the time to come on the show and my producer Liz Moppin for helping me put this episode together. I'm Cooper Peltz and this has been PA Nation. See you next time.